0: Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Hey, it's Tuesday, and if you don't know what happens on the Murder Bucket podcast on Tuesdays, then let me tell you. We are currently in a series called The Cold Case Road Trip. Each week, I cover two cold cases from all 50 states, D.C., and five inhabited territories. I do this in hopes that someone, somewhere, might have information that could help solve a cold case that I cover. This week, we will be traveling to California and Mississippi. Before we get started, I do want to make a correction from one of the cold cases that I covered last week. When I talked about Matthew Anfeld, who disappeared in Washington, I said that he was attacked a year prior to his disappearance. I misspoke. He was actually attacked only two months prior to his disappearance. I joined a group on Facebook called Help Find Matthew Enfelt, and when I posted that I covered his story last week, his mother listened to the episode and let me know that I had given you guys the wrong information. I'm going to do something a little bit different tonight in regards to our weekend slash week recap. I'm still going to let you know how my weekend slash week was and what you guys shared on Instagram and Twitter. Once a month, I'm going to highlight one women-owned business, such as a podcast, an Etsy shop, or an in-real-life store. Tonight, I will be highlighting the Round Here podcast. They are a mother and daughter trio podcast that cover all things strange and interesting in their Texas county and surrounding areas. They share history, paranormal, true crime, and a lot of laughs. They officially started their podcast on February 15th of 2021, so roughly three months ago. And the reason they got started was because they were into podcasts and they got inspired to do their own. The original idea was for the mom to actually make the podcast with her best friend, but unfortunately that fell through. So she started it with her daughters and so far it has worked out really well. I will share all of their links to social media and to their podcast directly in the show notes, but be sure to check out the Round Here podcast with your hosts, Brandy, Elora, and Lily. My weekend slash week was not very eventful. The only really notable things that happened were my hot water heater decided to stop working. Uh, I had to call a plumber to come out and take a look at it. He had to flush the system, kind of clean out a few different areas, and then it finally started working normally. And then Sunday, we went to church for the first time with no masks and no social distancing. It was very nice to be able to sing without thinking that you just can't breathe under your mask and to be able to see everyone's faces. Then that afternoon... Played softball, we lost, unfortunately, which is okay, it's just a game, and that was about it. Nothing else too exciting happened. Let's go see what you guys were up to. On Instagram, Murderous Roots said that they recorded their episode that is coming out on Wednesday covering Clyde Barrow, and they have been really busy researching upcoming episodes. They also got to celebrate their puppy's first birthday. Happy Buff Day, Puppers. On Instagram, History at Mac said that they finished The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by Victoria Schwab. I'm assuming that's a book, but correct me if I'm wrong. And finally, Chaotic Neutral Pod said that they finished school. Congratulations. I am so proud of you. Let's get started with tonight's episode, Stop 21, California. In 1991, Cecilia and her son, Renee Perez Jr., moved in with her then-boyfriend, Alfredo Newball. After dating for two years, they got married in 1993 and settled in Chatsworth, California. Cecilia was a customer service representative, and Alfredo was a nursing assistant at a hospital and a retirement home. In September of 1994, she was pregnant with her and Alfredo's first child together. She was currently on maternity leave since her due date was just a couple of weeks away. On September 20th, before leaving for work, Alfredo saw his wife at their apartment writing thank you notes to the family and friends who had attended her baby shower. Alfredo called home to check on his wife during his shift but she didn't answer. He called a few more times, and when she didn't answer any of those times, he became extremely concerned and left work early. When he got home, he noticed that his wife's car was parked on the street, which was odd because it was usually parked at the apartment's building secured lot. He rushed to their apartment and found no one inside. He noticed that there was no signs of a break-in or a struggle. He then went to her vehicle where he found a greeting card that read, thank you for the good times we had, signed Cecilia. Her engagement ring and wedding ring were inside. Next to that card was a photo of his stepson, Renee Jr. Alfredo began to search the area, asking anyone he came in contact with if they saw her or their son. There was only one person who said that they saw them outside the apartment around 5. When he returned to the apartment, he noticed that Cecilia hadn't taken anything with her except her purse and keys. All of their clothes and personal items were still there, as well as the things that they had purchased for the new baby. Later that evening, Alfredo called one of his wife's closest friends and work colleagues, Kevin Annabelle, to see if she was there. He placed several more phone calls to family and friends looking for his wife and stepson, but came up with nothing. In an article on unsolved.com, Kevin recounts how calm Alfredo was over the phone. He said, he was unusually calm. If it were me, I would be screaming at the person I thought knew where my wife was, but I was more nervous and excited than he was. Alfredo is also quoted in that same article saying, I felt like she needed to be away for a few days or something. I don't know. It was very strange, but I believed that she was coming back. That's why I was so calm. The next morning, a family member called the police to inform them of Cecilia and Renee's disappearance. Detective Alex says spoke with Alfredo and also found that his demeanor was a little odd. He said, Mr. Newball didn't appear to be that concerned, and here he has an eight-and-a-half-month pregnant wife and a six-year-old stepson that, according to everyone, including Mr. Newball, all got along fine. Mr. Newball just didn't appear to be the grieving soon-to-be new father. The police went to the apartment to confirm that she had not taken anything else but her purse and keys. Many family members and friends were also interviewed. They all told the police that the family had gotten along well and that there were no signs of abuse or violence. It was brought up by the police how unusual it was that her car wasn't parked in the secured lot. They had a theory that maybe whoever drove it last didn't have access to the lot or didn't want to be seen. Several days after their disappearance, Alfredo received a letter postmarked Van News, California. Inside was an identical greeting card to the one that was found inside Cecilia's car. This time, though, it was a typewritten letter signed with Cecilia's name. It explained that she had met a doctor named Arturo and ran off with him to Honduras. They had fallen in love nine months prior And it was possible that he was actually the father of her unborn child and not Alfredo. Her friend Kevin found the letter out of character for Cecilia. He stated, I would say she was almost obsessed with Alfredo. And when you're that in love with a person, you don't just meet a doctor and say, Well, I think I'm going to go to Honduras. Let me just write my husband a note. That just doesn't happen. Detective Vallises examined the letter and also agreed that the letter did not come from Cecilia. He was convinced that Alfredo or someone else had written it. In one article, it states that the police believe the letter came from a typewriter that belonged to a family member of Alfredo's, but I couldn't find any other information regarding this theory. Six months before her disappearance, Cecilia received a phone call from an unidentified woman who claimed to have a video of Alfredo kissing another woman at a baby shower. This woman wanted to meet up with her to exchange the tape. She was supposed to call again to arrange a date and time, but never did call back. Cecilia confided in her friend Cammie regarding this. Cammie states in an article, She had gotten a call that a woman had videotaped Alfredo kissing another woman at a baby shower. That woman wanted Cecilia to see the tape, And she agreed. Then, a few weeks before her disappearance, Cecilia received another strange phone call from another unidentified woman. This time, the woman claimed to be someone that Alfredo worked with. She told Cecilia that she was planning a surprise baby shower for Alfredo and that she also had some baby furniture that she wanted Cecilia to come and look at. Cecilia told her friend Cammie about this phone call as well. Cammy then told the police that Cecilia disappeared the same day she was supposed to meet the lady who had called about the baby shower and the furniture. Police later discovered that the second phone call wasn't made by anyone at Alfredo's work and that there was no baby shower planned. They believe that both phone calls were an attempt to lure Cecilia away from safety. There doesn't seem to be any other information regarding if the police investigated these phone calls further. One article listed several theories as to what might have happened to Cecilia and Renee Jr. Many believe that Alfredo had something to do with their disappearance. While he has never been charged a connection to their case, the police did learn that he was having an affair with another woman at the time. He is still considered the main suspect. Now, Cecilia's ex husband, Renee Sr., moved into the apartment with Alfredo shortly after the two disappeared, which seems very odd. He claims that the experience had brought the two men closer together because they shared the same grief. He and Alfredo accompanied the police several times to different maternity wards to confirm that Cecilia wasn't there. The police do not suspect Renee Sr. as being involved in their disappearance. There have been no reports of Cecilia or Renee Jr. since the day they disappeared. Because they didn't seem to take anything with them, such as medications, passports, or personal items, the police don't believe they voluntarily walked away. Despite both being gone for over 30 years, Alfredo has never declared either one dead, so no life insurance money has been collected. Cecilia was 32 years old and eight and a half months pregnant at the time of her disappearance. She was roughly four foot 11, and there is no description of what she was last seen wearing. Renee Jr. was six years old at the time of his disappearance. He was roughly three foot six and wore glasses, but those were found in the apartment later on. There is also no description of what he was last seen wearing. If you have any information regarding Cecilia or Renee Jr.'s disappearance, please contact the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office. This week's episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. Are you getting bored with the same old games on your phone and looking for something new to try? Then let me tell you about this game that I've been playing that you have to check out. It's called Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends is a new puzzle game that has literally thousands of levels to play and tons of cute characters to collect. I've unlocked 14 out of 192 characters, and my current favorite is Jojo. She is currently a caterpillar inside her cocoon awaiting to become a beautiful butterfly. Each time you evolve the characters, they get new abilities and their look changes. I can't wait to see Jojo's colors once I evolve her. This game has something new every day, such as levels, events, and challenges to keep you entertained. It does challenge your brain, but is casual enough that it doesn't stress you out, which is a great thing right now. And anyone can play. It's made for adults, but it's bright, colorful, fun, really approachable, and is a nice breather from the heavy true crime world. I find myself playing Best Fiends while sitting on the couch after a long day at work. It helps me wind down before I go to sleep. I've made it to level 73 in the endless desert and can't wait to see what else this game has in store. So join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Remember, that's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Stop 22. Mississippi. Daniel Dutton, 28, worked as a taxi cab driver for the Yellow Cab Company in Biloxi, Mississippi, and lived with his parents in Long Beach. He took his last fare at 8.50 p.m. in Gulfport on July 8th of 2000. His father saw him around 11 p.m. that evening at their home. Then... The next morning, he was gone. His parents found a note from him stating that he was going away for a few days. When no one heard from him for over a week, his father reported him missing on July 17th. Daniel's taxi was found five days after he was last seen, parked at a Days Inn hotel in Lake City, Florida. This was over 400 miles away from his home. His checkbook, glasses, and receipts were found inside, as well as a roll of duct tape and a bent golf club were found in the trunk. Police investigators saw no visible blood in the vehicle. Hotel staff who found Daniel's taxi called the cab company instead of the police. The cab company then called Daniel's home to check on him and make arrangements to have his taxi towed back to Biloxi. The receipts that were found in his vehicle indicated that he had traveled to Gainesville, Florida. They were for purchases of a backpack, a toothbrush, and toothpaste. When the police went to Gainesville to conduct a search, they learned that he stayed at an Econo Lodge around July 9th and paid with cash. A hotel employee confirmed with police that the bill was paid as a cash walk-in. On mnmissing.xyz, It states that his checking account was overdrawn two weeks before his disappearance and that he had maxed out all of his credit cards. What is odd is that Gainesville is roughly 51 miles from Lake City where his vehicle was found. According to an article in the Clarin Ledger, his family were not aware of anyone that Daniel knew in Florida and also said that he wasn't prone to traveling great distances alone. He also had little to no money to even make a trip that far. Police Chief Wayne McDowell is quoted in the article saying, He just vanished. I don't believe he's still alive. There's just too many strange things about this case. It's stuck in my mind. I've always wondered what happened to him. The Yellow Cab Company was in the process of installing surveillance cameras in all of their vehicles as a security measure and Daniel hadn't gotten his installed yet before his disappearance. One belonging that has been missing since Daniel's disappearance was a twenty-two caliber gun that his father had bought him. Daniel also didn't own a cell phone and hasn't emailed anyone since the day he disappeared. There was a body that was discovered in New York in late 2000, but it turned out not to be a match for Daniel. In 2001, at a missile site, bones were discovered. But unfortunately, those weren't a match either. For several years after his disappearance, Long Beach Police Dispatcher Kevin Smith called Daniel's parents. He was required to follow up on the NCIC listings yearly to see if a missing or wanted person had turned up. In an article in the Clarin Ledger, he states, Sometimes I called them just to check in. I guess I did this because I'm also a dad and have two sons that would have been the same age. It's very distressing to call a mom or a dad about a missing child, but my heart did go out to them. Daniel's sister Yoko told a reporter that she wants to believe her brother left on his own to start a new life. She had hoped that after Hurricane Katrina, he would have come home or even called, but no such luck. His father sometimes believed that his son drove a fair to Florida because he sometimes drove fares to New Orleans. Police chief Wayne McDowell regrets that he was unable to find answers to Daniel's whereabouts before his parents passed away. At the time of his disappearance, Daniel was five foot nine and weighed roughly one hundred ninety five pounds. He was last seen wearing a t shirt and black pants. He wore his hair long and had a beard. Unfortunately, this is all the information that I could find regarding Daniel's case. If you have any information regarding his disappearance, you are asked to contact the Long Beach Police Department. Thank you for listening to tonight's episode, and I hope you will stick around to hear this promo from my friend David at Piecing It Together Podcast. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on PiecingPod.com. You can also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at MurdBucket, Twitter at the MurderBucket, and Facebook at BucketMurd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.